Amen. Father, we worship you this day because you are the sovereign architect of our salvation. You planned before time began and executed in time and sending your Son, Jesus Christ, who came and became incarnate, took on flesh, was the Word who dwelt among us and proclaimed salvation in His holy blood alone. Christ accomplished for us our redemption by paying the sufficient price upon Calvary's tree. It was His death that accomplished, as we've just sung, our salvation. And we thank you in this room today for those whose hearts ring with this fact, with this truth, for those who have joined in song to celebrate the very God who has redeemed them from the surety of judgment due their sin unto righteousness and glory and eternal life in Jesus Christ. We thank you that the Holy Spirit himself, the third person of the Trinity, has applied these truths to our heart has encouraged us, opened our eyes to see the truth, has comforted us through testing and trial, and continues to change us into the image of our Lord and Savior. We pray that the Spirit would use the means that you have provided in this service today to continue to cause us to grow in ways that would be more pleasing to our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would work through the proclamation of your word, obedience of the faith among the nations for your people this day. And I also pray that by the proclamation of your truth, you would draw the lost unto salvation, that they would hear and know that the only way to be saved, the only hope for eternal life is in Christ's shed blood. The only power over the grave is found in his resurrection from the dead. And the only authority over all the universe is seated right now at the right hand of the Father, even Christ our Lord, ruling and reigning and intervening, interceding for his church forever before the throne of grace. We thank you for these truths. We pray that you would draw our attention to your holy scriptures and open our hearts to comprehend them, open our mouth to proclaim them, and encourage our faith all the while so that you might be glorified in the testimony of your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. (coughs) This morning we have the great privilege of turning our attention to God's holy word in Genesis chapter 13. Would you turn there in your scriptures with me today? Genesis chapter 13. Here the third Sunday of the month, we resume our Genesis series, and we find the main subject of our story, Abram, on his way back from Egypt to repent, as it were, and return to an altar that we had found him making in the beginning of chapter 12. And we also find that he is with company. There are those who join him, or have been along for the ride all the while. Namely, his nephew Lot, Lot's flocks and family and so forth. But now, as the title of our message indicates, the road of Lot's future and Abram's future is about to diverge. The title of this morning's message is Two Roads Diverged. The aim of this morning's sermon is to identify timeless truths featured in the Abraham-Lot narrative. There's a conflict that arises among the flocks, sheep herders, and area of the herdsmen that belong to Lot or that represent and take care of and steward his flocks and those among Abraham. And that is the occasion for this diverging of roads or two paths taken. So that's a little bit of introduction and context for you. With your Bible open, uh, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word this morning out of reverence? And let us hear the Holy Scriptures proclaimed in our ears as we consider Genesis 13, 
verses 1 through 11. Listen now to God's holy word. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Verse 8. And Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is it not the whole land? Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> Two rows diverged. The title for today's message is borrowed from a line in a Robert Frost poem. The poem's title is The Road Not Taken. Frost muses in retrospect how the course of one's life can often present two options, and eventually the consequences are realized along the way, consequences that may have been obscured at the time of choosing. That is to say that there are times in our life where we could go one way or the other, and at the time, it seems like, well, 50-50, they both have some uh, you know, pros, maybe they both, to our perspective, have some cons. But in the sovereignty of God's big picture perspective, who is Lord of all history, only he knows that direction you may take, what consequences lie at the end. This is why the walk of faith is sometimes called a walk, not by sight, but indeed a walk of faith. Abraham, a great father of the faith, was an example of this walk, particularly in our text today. Our last story of Abram's interaction with Egypt, not so much. He walked to Egypt, as it were, to escape certain circumstances and to hide the identity of his wife, passed her off as his sister. This was walking by sight. However, there's a turning of the page in our story today, and now we have Abram returning in repentance, walking by faith once again, as it were. But in contrast to him, we have Lot, who takes a different road. Their paths diverge. And as the account in Genesis unfolds, we see the consequences of their decisions. So this situation, uh, such as it is, is the very circumstances of diverging paths of Abraham and Lot that we find in Genesis 13, this seemingly insignificant 
negotiation of where to graze one's numerous flocks will have ripple effects for generations as the biography of the patriarchal history in the land unfolds. For Abram, the incident serves to illustrate godly character and faithfulness based on his confidence in the promises of God. Abram, having at this time returned to calling on his name, returned, having returned to the altar of Bethel. For Lot, his nephew, however, this moment marks a parting of ways which will prove to be a path of severe discipline. Lot chooses, and thinking he makes the best choice, however, he ends up choosing the path of severe discipline. The parenthetical note in the author's account, namely Moses in verse 10, lets us know a little foreshadowing of judgment to come. Moses says, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. There was a doom, there was an oracle of judgment, there was a um, there was a, or what's the diagnosis is the word I'm looking for, of the spiritual and moral character of Sodom and Gomorrah that spelled certain judgment for them. And in spite of this evident immorality, we can assume, nevertheless, for the promise of greener pastures, literally, Lot chose that direction to graze his flocks. The scenario provides us a telling contrast before uh, uh, documenting the fruit of these decisions. Through the next few chapters of Genesis, we can see these decisions playing out. John Calvin writes of Lot's decision in particular, quote, even as he thought he was living in heaven, uh, he had already sunk almost into hell. Even as he thought he was living in heaven, or the promises of these greener pastures, this overflowing bounty, was striking to his eye, and he placed his hopes of of a provision there. Even though he might have thought he was choosing a heavenly direction, he had already sunk almost into hell. Yet despite Lot's misplaced affections, which take their eventual toll on his livelihood, his homeland, his lineage, his dignity, and his relationship with Abram, Lot nevertheless is mercifully spared ultimate judgment, as Peter declares of him that he was eventually rescued as a righteous man, greatly distressed by the conduct of the wicked around him. And this is referenced in 2 Peter 2, particularly in verse 7. A significant story as other biblical writers pick up on these themes. These themes are featured in our text today, and they'll also be featured in chapters to come as the record continues to document the significance of these two roads, Lot versus Abram, that diverge at this incident. I have a heading for three major points today. Abram and Lot serve to illustrate three aspects of covenant life. They serve, of course, to illustrate more, but let's just choose three from our text today. Three aspects of covenant life that are illustrated in these events. Number one, just three words simply, first of all. Number one, repentance. Number two, trials. Number three, mediation. Life in the covenant. For us, the new covenant is marked by these three things, repentance, trials, and mediation. But we see these three elements illustrated in our text today. When we look at repentance, 
we uh, look at the retracing of the pathway to Abram's altar. Retracing the altar path, his steps return to Bethel. When we look at trials, we see that there are inevitable tests of faith that the experience of Lot and Abraham testify to. There are inevitable tests of faith and fellowship along the way. And finally, mediation. We see in Abram's faithful example an exemplary role where he actually mediates this dispute and all the while displaying godly characteristics and even modeling something of a significant son to come. More on that in the course of our message. Let us consider number one. Abram and Lot serve to illustrate an aspect of covenant life, namely repentance, retracing the altar path. Consider again verses 1 through 4 in Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had and Lot with him into the Negeb. Negeb, incidentally, is the southern portion of the promised land. So this path, this journey indicates a direction. Egypt is to the south, in between is the Negeb, and then north of that, Bethel and Ai. So you can see he's going back to where he started it, as it were. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, verse 2, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning. Mark that phrase, where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai. Verse 4, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. This, of course, recalls in Genesis 12, Abraham's journey heading south. He had left his, uh, the, the city of man, as it were, as we've often mentioned, illustrated by Haran and also Ur. And he went to a place that the Lord would show him on the way. It says in verse 6, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. And at that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram, saying, and said, To your offspring I will give this land. How did he respond? 7b. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And then it continues, verse 8, And there he built an altar to the Lord. This is again, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east, he built an altar to the Lord. And what did he do? He called upon the name of the Lord. In this pathway of repentance, Abram is returning to the foundation of his faith. He's returning to the moment whereby the rest of his life and the promises of God were established foundationally. And that was the word of God, the appearance of God, and the works of God that Abraham had experienced. But where was he coming from at this time? He was coming up out of Egypt. Abraham went up from Egypt he and his wife, and all that he had. This represents repentance. When Abram was in Egypt, he came up with a scheme. You remember our last sermon in the series, do you not? He pretended that his wife was his sister because he feared his own life. And we raised the question, husbands, you think it's a good idea to negotiate the safety of your bride for your own self-preservation? No. Is that what God designed marriage to be? (laughs) Couldn't be more opposite. God designed marriage to be the laying down of one's life and sacrificial leadership for the benefit of one's bride. And that's what Christ did for us. But in this antichrist moment, if you will, of lack of faith, Abraham did the opposite. 
He negotiated the safety of his bride instead of laying his life down for her in hopes of preserving his own. You see, he was walking by sight and not by faith. And what did he fail to do? He failed to revisit the altar, which was a memorial and a remembrance of what God had spoken and what God had done for him. And so in our last story, Abraham, in his experience in Egypt, the altar and, the calling on, and his calling on the name of the Lord is conspicuously absent. But now Abram is repenting. He is going up from Egypt. In so doing, this is significant, and its significance relates to other passages of Scripture. Consider one in Hosea. Hosea prophesies there's just a little, a sliver of hope in Hosea, this section, in the midst of a judgment oracle. Um, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, that song I learned when I was little helps me find the book. This is a minor prophet, <clears throat> shorter books. So here we are, Isaiah 11.1. 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This out of Egypt reference takes on prophetic significance. It can be said in truth that God called his son Abram out of Egypt. It can be said in point of fact that God called his son, which referred to all of Israel as his people, also out of Egypt some 400 plus years later in the Exodus. But it is ultimately said of God's one and only son, Jesus Christ himself, the ultimate son or significant son, as we have said in Matthew chapter 2. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 2, verse 8, I believe. I'm sorry, 15. Matthew 2, 15. So you remember, Mary and Joseph had taken refuge in Egypt, and there came a time when Herod died, and it says, now when they had departed, behold, verse, verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Then note this phrase, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So I wonder if Abram knew that in coming up out of Egypt, he was prefiguring a prophetic movement a mess of messianic significance of a son to come. Abraham as an individual is likely mostly thinking of regret as he repented and returned to the place of his altar communion with the Lord. But the Lord was sovereignly directing the steps of his significant son to actually model the pattern of exodus, of deliverance, and of entrance the journey north the Messiah himself would take to fulfill prophecy of hope out of Egypt. Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him. So on this pathway to repentance, as Abraham retraces his steps back to the altar, along the way, there are aspects of covenant life that are illustrated. Number one, hope would come for those who would repent of their sin up out of Egypt and would be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ as a baby following or, or uh, 
on board with his parents following the instruction of the angel to return to the promised land after being exiled to the south at that time of Herod, thousands of years after Abram's journey. Secondly, under repentance, we find this interesting fact. Abraham was very rich. Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had a lot with him, into the Negev. Now, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. Young people, I have a question for you. Where do you suppose that Abram got all his riches? How did he get so wealthy all of a sudden? Does anyone have any idea? Yeah, good guess, good guess. Pharaoh. Yes, that is correct. Silas is on the right track. Israel as well. Very good, you guys. You're remembering the last story, aren't you? Notice in Genesis 12, verse 16. And for her sake, that is, Sarai, Abram's wife, he, namely Pharaoh, dwelt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So in order to pay, presumably, a bride price, Pharaoh, the rich and well-to-do king, you know, ruler of Egypt, he gave all these gifts, all these presents to Abraham and company. And so now as Abram is leaving Egypt, incidentally, he has in tow all kinds of riches. What is the significance of this? Well, once again, it prefigures an Exodus moment to come. In Exodus chapter 2, a similar event takes place in the life of the Israelites. Is it Exodus 2? Maybe it's Exodus 3. Exodus 3. Exodus 3, verse 21. The Israelites re- received these instructions. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So again, this is 400 plus years later. And the Israelites, descendants of Abraham, are in Egypt. They've been in slavery for 430 years. They're now on the threshold of their exodus, their escape from this tyranny. And the Lord grants them favor in the sight of the Egyptians. It says, and when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry, jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. We talked about this in our last story. Regardless of the deception and regardless of the scenario, Egypt, Pharaoh, incident, Pharaoh particularly, was held accountable for transgressing the covenant, for taking this wife unto himself, which was not his, did not belong to him. And so God brought plagues on Egypt. Does that remind you of another time when God brought plagues on Egypt? Yes. So you see many parallels, do you not? So the message is this. God's covenant reigns supreme. It is the Lord who sets the rules. Even if you have good intentions, you transgress his covenant at your own peril. And for those who stand in opposition to God's will, they will be plundered. The riches that once were boasted by the kings and authorities and people of the earth will eventually be confiscated by the Lord of glory. And they will be moved into the hands of his people. And sometimes in the course of history, a picture of this despoiling takes place. It happened in Abraham's case through this set of circumstances. It happened in the Israelites exiting. But one day it will happen ultimately in the new heavens and new earth where you and I will dwell on streets that are paved with gold. And all of the kings of the earth will one day pay tribute. And they will not be able to boast 
anything of their own importance, their own glory, their own accomplishments, their own significance because of the area they control or the storehouses of wealth they have in their coffers. No, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father and every knee will bow and proclaim that he is King of Kings. So as Abraham is retracing his steps of repentance, perhaps unbeknownst to him, he is prophetically uh, indicating, foreshadowing events yet to come. He has despoiled, incidentally, the Egyptians, and he has returned, a la the pathway of the future Messiah, up from Egypt. Where is he going? Well, this is the most important element, perhaps, of this first point, repentance, retracing the altar path. He is going to the place where he had made an altar at the first, verse 4. And there Abraham, Abram, called upon the name of the Lord. This is where Abram is going. He has a mission. He has a destiny. He has a purpose that he has set his face like flint to accomplish. And it is a 180 degree turn. What is repentance? Well, it involves that idea of turning from one direction in life course, an about face and heading the opposite way. This is quite literally in geographical terms what Abram did. He set his face, about face, put his back to the worldly promises of Egypt, to that place where he knew was the foundation of his hope. Where was that? The place between Bethel and Ai, the place where he had made an altar at the first, where God had visited him and given him the promise of a land and a people. Therein was his hope. His hope was not invested in Sodom and Gomorrah as Lot would place his fortunes in the future. His hope was not invested in Egypt, a powerful empire at the time that thrived on the irrigating delta of the Nile. None of these things, although they looked promising in the meantime, would hold ultimate hope. No, it was the word of God spoken to him by divine appearing at the altar of Ai and Bethel that was the place of Abraham's confidence, hope, assurance, security, and promise of salvation. Where do we lift our eyes? You see, there's a contrast in the text. Is there not more on this in the future? But Lot, unlike Abraham in verse 10, lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Lot lifted up his eyes to the promising fields of the wicked cities on the plains. Abram lifted his eyes upon his repentance of his sinful distraction. He lifted his eyes to the altar place of God's appearing and returned to that area and began to call upon the name of the Lord. He is retracing these steps. He's going back to square one. In the, wor in the, the words of a uh, rock band that we used to play with, he is literally starting over. Little reference for Jagger and E there. They had a band called Starting Over, which basically the name of their band epitomized this very concept. Quite literally, Abram is starting over. He's going back to the place where he had made an altar at the first. That brings up our second major point today. Abram and Lot serve to illustrate three aspects of covenant life. Number one, in Abram's journey, he illustrates repentance. Number two, in this conflict between him and his nephew Lot, we have illustrated trials. There are inevitable tests along the way of faith and fellowship. 
inevitable tests. Uh, that means trials are unescapable in the Christian life. They will come. We don't know exactly what form, but none of us will be strangers to them as we walk in our journey. The scriptures teach us this, and this is illustrated in these events. Verse 5, and Lot who went with Abraham also had flocks and herds and tents. So the immediate occasion of this test is you have two individuals that have these overflowing herds and all these wealth and possessions, and the land is getting cramped for both of them to dwell side by side. So hence there is strife between the herdsmen, right? But I want you to notice this phrase in verse 5, Lot who went with Abraham. That is a significant phrase, and it's repeated in so many words. It's a, it's a, repeat, it's a repeat of a phrase in so many words from verse 1. And Abraham went up uh, from Egypt, and Lot went with him. So as Abraham is on his journey, presumably south to Egypt, Lot was with him. As Abraham had left Haran and uh, come down initially to the promised land, Lot was by his side. As Abraham exited out of Egypt to return to this place of altar, Lot went with Abram as well. Now, this was significant. Why? Because Abram is a significant son. Kids, remember the legacy of Shem? The legacy, the legacy of Shem is marked by significant sons. One thing unique about significant sons is they represent covenant heads, or they are a, a, an, a they, they uh, signify a covenant head to come. In other words, what happened to Adam in his transgression uh, is a covenant leadership role. That is, all who are in Adam, born of Adam's seed, are born in sin because of Adam's fall. And in covenant theology, we understand from what the scriptures teach that on the other side of things, Jesus is the head of the covenant of grace. That is to say, all who are with Jesus, you could say, or in Christ, better said, this in Christ language, union with Christ language, they experience what he did. Therefore, when he died, we died to our sin. When he was risen from the, uh, from the dead, the promise of a second resurrection was certifiably ours. When he was crucified for our transgressions, our sins were paid for. This is the role of representative headship. That is to say that blessings attend those who cling to the covenant head. The fact that Lot was with Abram was a great advantage to him. If you hit your wagons to the significant son, you will increase in blessings. If you take a road away from God's plan and purposes and promises to Abraham, all bets are off. And so Lot is faced with this scenario, the promise of worldly possessions or figuring this thing out and staying alongside Abraham, recognizing that God has made a promise to this man and I want to be close to the one whom God speaks directly to. Abraham served, again, this is before the priesthood, this is before Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Abraham served at times in something of a priestly role. Remember, who are priests? Priests are ones who speak to God on behalf of the people. And Abraham did that in the case of later interceding for Lot himself again uh, upon the soon coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. But Abraham at times served in a prophetic role as well. A prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. If Lot is living over here in Sodom and Gomorrah, surrounded by a wicked culture, and it's not like they have internet in those days, He's not going to hear the next time that God reveals himself in a flaming pot 
and passes through and signifies by oath to himself that there is a sure covenant and there will be a people who will be redeemed for God's holy name through Abraham's lineage. This will be lost on Lot because his path has diverged. He has chosen another road. This is significant. The most, uh, in the most distorting trials, these blessings are often taken lightly. In other words, when the trials are super intense or there's a lot of conflict and strife, when the stress levels rise, it is tempting to forget the great blessings of covenant. It's easy to condemn Lot for doing so. It's easy with hindsight, the objective view that we have, reading his story to think him an idiot. But consider yourself. When stress levels rise and you go through trials, when there's conflict in your own life, are you tempted by the greener pastures of what the world has to offer? Shortcut solutions, promises that you can touch, see, things that the world testifies to? Or do you cling all the closer to your relationship to your covenant head, Jesus Christ? Yes, he has ordained that I go through the valley of the shadow of death. Nevertheless, I trust that my shepherd's rod staff are sufficient to carry me through. And he will. He will lead you beside still waters. He will take you to the greener pastures as Psalm 23 declares. But that journey is not without its occasional valley of the shadow of death. Will you abandon the covenant in your hour of trial? That is a question. Note these, the nature of these challenges. It illustrates the inevitability of testing. And it's ironic. Whereas the problem before was one of famine, now the problem is one of prosperity. In chapter 12, verse 10, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So the fact that there was little to no food created this conflict. Oh, what will we do? We better run away to Egypt. But now what's the problem? The problem is they're too rich. They have too big of flocks. There's not enough room for everybody. So here the problem is one of prosperity, a provision, or plenty. And this illustrates to us that there isn't a set of circumstances in this life which will bring us peace. You may wish and lust and after, or you may uh, covet your neighbor who seems to have life easier because he has so many possessions. But the possessions and great flocks and the promise of all this wealth and riches that Abraham and Lot both boasted, did that secure for them a conflict, stress-free life? No, of course it didn't. They were called in, their in these challenges to trust the Lord. Whether there was a famine in the land, to go to the altar and call in the name of the Lord. Or if there was prosperity in the land and jealousy and conflict, to go to the altar and call upon the name of the Lord. Place your faith and your decisions in the hands of God's revealed word. This is what Abraham was doing in his repentance at this time, but Lot, not so much. So this created infighting. Again, we see what happens. There was strife in verse 7 between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock, the herdsmen of Lot's livestock, and so forth. There's this anti-family passions inflamed by the flesh. The material complications, luxury and ease often breed strife. Whereas in times of suffering, they often breed unity and camaraderie. The lesson here is, be careful what you wish for. 
And perhaps an even more precise lesson is don't place your hopes, don't invest wishes in mere earthly circumstances because they are not the answer. Instead, look to Christ. And then finally, under these trials, we have onlookers, if you will. At that time, verse 10, verse uh, 7 tells us, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So Abraham and Lot weren't the only ones in this general, you know, broadly speaking, region. There were also heathens, pagans, um, natives, if you will, to this area. So this raises a question, does it not? What of potentially unfriendly neighbors? If Lot goes here and Abraham goes there, could it make them more vulnerable to attack? You know, we come, we come upon the story of Lot later, and it almost seems like he lost much of his wealth. Surely when he fled from Sodom and Gomorrah, he doesn't have any time to herd his flocks along. And interestingly enough, we find him in the middle of a city anyway. Whatever happened to this great herdsman? It seems like he has been sucked into this life of luxury and ease such that he fails in his dominion mandate and now has just taken refuge in the city of man. That's where we find him down the way. Why has this taken place? Well, because there's Canaanites and Perizzites in the land. There is unbelievers around who will take advantage of a failure and test to move in, confiscate uh, flocks, and basically wreak havoc. So it's dangerous not to follow the Lord and His Word, not to bind yourself to His covenant promises. But also, there is a testimony that we ought to give to the heathen. What message did it send to the Canaanites and Perizzites that Lot and Abram and their herdsmen couldn't get along? This wasn't such a great testimony, a witness to that family which held out covenant hope for all nations. Now we have infighting among the herdsmen of a family clan who was to be a light to all the corners, all the coastlands of the earth. Now, their strife did not quench the light, but it did shroud to some degree, we can assume, their witness. The Canaanites and Perizzites would surely have seen a better testimony of the covenant hope of Jesus Christ and the future and the promises that God would bring through this significant son and his lineage in this holy land if its you know, chief beneficiaries, the immediate heirs of this promise, could get along. And so that raises the question, this raises the question of testimony as well. And also there may even be uh, an implicit indictment in the history here, and it seems even in this case, that somehow the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the pagans, had found a way to get along. They were at least coexisting in this place. And so what did that say of Abram and Lot when they were forced, it seems because of this strife, to part ways? So these are questions and conflicts and tests and trials that are illustrated in this incident. One man embraces them with faith and wisdom, having just freshly visited the altar of the Lord, clinging to his word, that is evident in how he interacts. The other man sets his face, namely Lot, on the promises of greener pasture among the wicked. This brings up point number three, mediation. Abram's exemplary role. So again, Abraham and Lot, Abram served and Lot served to illustrate three aspects of covenant life. Repentance, illustrated by Abram's retracing his steps back to the altar. Trials, the inevitable tests of faith and fellowship we've seen, we see, have seen between Lot and Abram. And finally, mediation, Abram's good example in seeking to extend grace in spite of this situation. Notice what he says in verse 8. Then Abram said to Lot, 
Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley that was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So Lot chooses to separate himself from Abram, but notice what Abram, uh, where his priorities and where his values fell. First of all, he identifies himself as kinsman with Lot. And for Abram, he recognized that that was of greater importance. Abram identifies the family bond as a more important, the most important motive force in considering what to do. That is to say, the bond of covenant that God had established between him and his family. These promises that are tied to his patriarchal or father leader role in his family. This should be a stronger motive, even in this dispute, than any other competing motives or intentions. In other words, the fact that Abram and Lot are kinsmen should carry more weight than the promise of wealth, than the concern for status, than ambitious opportunity that lie in the distant fields, than preferences of where I'd like to be and having things my way, or even proprietary claims. This land, after all, was promised to Abram, and he as an individual received this promise. Yet here we see him being generous, taking the second straw, if you will, allowing Lot to choose first where he would prefer to be. Why did Abram uh, interact in this way? Because he was exemplifying in this noble role that the fact that he was kinsman, that this relationship with Lot was such that they were family, that was most important. Again, for Lot, not so much. Abraham is mediating in this instance. And what is the role of a mediator? It's one who goes between two parties who are in conflict to seek to resolve it. Young people, question for you, who is the only ultimate mediator? Who is the only mediator between God and man, the scriptures tell us? Does anyone know? I heard one. That's correct. Jesus. As Abram seeks by the word of God and according to biblical values and godly character to mediate in this instance, he is modeling the role that Jesus would fulfill perfectly in the future. Jesus is the one who mediates the greatest dispute of all. That is, our transgression of God's holy law. We are, as the scriptures say, enemies of a holy and righteous and sacred and glorious God until such time as a go-between solves this dilemma. And Jesus, the only and the great mediator between God and man, solved this dilemma by making peace between the sinner and the righteous God by dying in our place. Abraham demonstrated something of this heart of sacrifice, did he not? Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I'll take the right. Though Abraham had rightful claim to all the land, by virtue of God's word and promise, he nevertheless deferred to his nephew at his own expense, especially considering this personal promise he had received. In so doing, he was demonstrating that sacrificial, self-giving, 
that the ultimate covenant had Jesus Christ was, would exhibit for us. Listen, the son of Abraham would one day give his life that we might inherit his estate. The son of Abram would one day give his very life, Jesus Christ would give his life on Calvary that we might inherit the promised land, if you will, eternal life, his estate, or his testament. And so doing, we see, or in similar way, at least in shadow form, we see Abram here foregoing his claim on the land for the sake of his kinsmen. This mediate, a mediation that Abraham is exemplifying speaks of the gospel to come. It recognizes that relationships are of utmost importance and peace and sacrifice go hand in hand. There is no reconciliation with the holy God without the shed blood of the sufficient sacrifice. Let's close final points this morning under mediation by considering Lot in contrast to this. Note verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Uh, young people, another trivia qu uh, quiz for you. What is the name of the garden of the Lord? Kids in the room, what is the name of the garden of the Lord? I hear a couple. The garden of where Adam and Eve were first place. Garden of... Getting, uh, getting close, getting close. Eden, that's correct. The garden of Eden. I asked you before, where do you lift up your eyes? Well, a lot lifted up his eyes, and he saw on the horizons lush valleys. He saw a well-watered area. He saw the promise of wealth, and he compared, and it was it's compared in this text to the Garden of Eden or the Garden of the Lord. That's an interesting reference. A second reference, like the land of Egypt. So the eyes of Lot became starry with the hope of this utopian promise on, at the cities of the plains. In other words, this was a hope to return to the bounty of Eden, with, but not God's path to get there. This illustrates a, a tendency in the heart of man that is alive and well today. Uh, mankind is made in God's image, has a cultural memory of his fall. In spite of all the truth suppression that our culture embarks upon, denying the word of God is authoritative, saying these stories that we're reading, proclaiming these accounts are foolish, now, uh, saying they have no historical merit. In spite of all of that, man nevertheless is the uh, descendant of Adam and Eve. And deep within the consciousness of every human being is this wish for Eden, is this utopian hope, is this desire, this sort of wistful memory, this longing to return to a place of peace and prosperity where all our troubles can be washed away. This is the utopian delusion, if you will. Egypt and Eden are references that speak to a wistful longing stemming from humanity's cultural memory of paradise lost. Just as Satan tempted man that the path to God, to Godlike wisdom, was by an end run around God's plan for advancement, namely covenant obedience. So remember what Satan promised Adam and Eve, you know, just eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will be like God. 
In other words, Satan tempted them with a utopian delusion. They can better their estate, not by God's way, not by following his covenant, not by clinging to his covenant head, not by placing their faith in the promises, but placing faith in the promise of Satan. This provision of the apple that looks so good to eat in their eye, or the provision of the plains of Zoar like Egypt, and they look almost like Eden, and perhaps in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will be happy and content and satisfied, and my problems will grow strangely dim in the light of Sodom and Gomorrah? I don't think so. Nevertheless, we are tempted by these sort of things. Here, Lot is deceived by the promise of Sodom, just like Abram was drawn to Egypt in the prior story. Lot was believing that a sword, or uh, he was believing Satan's revised lie that access to Eden can be repossessed, never mind the flaming sword uh, that guards the opening. And so in our Genesis series, let me recall a moment that is instructive here. Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Brothers and sisters, the gospel teaches us that there is no repossession of Eden. There is no hope for utopia unless there is shedding of blood. Only one who can go through the sword can regain access to Eden. Jesus Christ broke the door of Eden wide open when the sword pierced his side and the nails pierced his hands and feet. But don't be deluded. There is no end run around Jesus Christ and his sufficient sacrifice to reclaim the promise of hope and and bounty and help and, you know, lack of stress or whatever else that we might think eternal life. There is no hope to get to Eden outside of a sufficient sacrifice. Satan's revised lie is that access to Eden can be repossessed. Never mind this flaming sword. But that sword proclaims that executive judgment stands between man and the perfection of his estate. Somebody must be punished for a just God to uh, receive the just payment for the infraction, for the sin, for the crimes against him. And so Jesus did this for us. There is no entrance into realms of peace, prosperity, and glory, ultimately speaking, without the death of a sufficient sacrifice. Let's close by turning to Hebrews 6. Let us not listen, be tempted by, be distracted by, as Lot was, the promise in Egypt or the promise of Eden without the proper means, namely God's word and covenant, which is the only way to secure those hope that hope and promise for us. Now in Hebrews 6.13, we read the following, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, or no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And this happens later in Genesis 15. We will see that moment in our series in due course. Hebrews 6.14 continues saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Did Lot patiently wait? Pausing there for, to insert an illustration from our text today. No, he did not. He didn't patiently wait for the promise land to yield what God had sworn to his servant to give. Instead, he looked for promise elsewhere, the plains of Zoar, verse 16. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God decided to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And note verses 19 and 20 especially. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor of our soul. Where? In the Sodom and Gomorrahs of our day? In the Egypts or plains of Zoar of our day, of the worldly promises of wealth and success and ease and luxury and the best that, you know, the kingdoms of this earth can offer? No, that is not where our hope lies. That is not where the steadfast anchor of our soul is fixed. No, it is fixed only in Jesus Christ. There was a curtain that separated the presence of a holy God from the people's entry. And that barrier of entry was just like the flaming sword that guarded the sinner from the realm of God's sanctuary and holy presence in the Garden of Eden. And there is a barrier that yet remains in heaven one day, and there is only one way to get through that curtain, and it is through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He passed through that veil, as it were, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek will be introduced to us in the next chapter of Genesis. So I hope you see today some of these threads of biblical truth coming together and how they're illustrated in our story. Abraham and Lot serve to illustrate that repentance is part and parcel to the Christian life. And if we find ourselves losing our way like Abraham and Lot did at various times, retrace your steps to the Word of God. Retrace your steps to His revelation of Himself in His Holy Scriptures and place your hope in the anchor of your soul there in Jesus Christ. And as we go through trials, inevitable tests of faith and fellowship, where strife or other discouraging factors are all around, let them move us to cling to our covenant head, Jesus Christ, not to invest hope elsewhere. And finally, as we seek for mediation as sinners, knowing that we do not deserve the presence of a holy God, let us look to the son of Abram. Indeed, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the significant son to come, who in his torn flesh purchased access for us into the holy sanctuary of God. This is our only hope and stay. Two roads diverge in everyone's life. One is the road less traveled, and that is the road narrow, Few there be that find it, but in the end is eternal life. And that road is following Jesus Christ. That road is the gospel. That road is his death for your sin. There's another road illustrated by Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's preferences and Abraham's delusions when he first went south. That road is wide and leads to the destruction. If you find yourself tempted by it, repent this morning and go back, return to your first love. Return to the altar of the Lord and His proclaimed authoritative word. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank You for the message of hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this message that is so beautifully woven through all of the testimony of Your Scriptures. 
We thank you that the promises to Abraham are sure for us in Christ, our covenant head. We thank you, Lord, that your word has the power to transform our minds, to bring conviction of sin, and to set our thoughts right and our goals toward that which pleases you. I pray for every believer in this room that it would have that effect. But I also thank you that your word proclaimed has the power to call forth the dead from spiritual miry clay and darkness and the death of sin unto new life. And I pray that you would do the same today if any in the hearing of this message are yet lost in their transgressions. Would you resurrect them? Would you show them Christ is their Savior, their mediator, the only one that can get them, earn them entrance through the purchase price of his blood into the realms of glory? Thank you, Lord, again for the precious gift of gathering us together, the gift of your holy word. May your spirit maximize it for your glory and the growth of your kingdom this week and the lives of the saints that hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.